Thrive Leadership Podcast in three, two, cue music. This is the Thrive Leadership Leadership Podcast. Podcast. It's a place to connect you to nationally acclaimed leaders, their insights, and ideas on how to help you thrive in every area of your life. Of your life. Of your life. On today's episode. We have never had the airwaves, the media waves, as open to us as we have not. We are able to reach people at a time when we, I believe people are wanting to hear the authoritative good news of Jesus from people who will speak into the ordinary lives of ordinary people. Now your host, Brad Lominick. Ken Costa is joining us on Skype from London. Ken, we are all stuck. As we record today, March the 31st, we are all in quarantine. Some sheltered in place, some literally in lockdown. Give us an update from, I guess, your place in London. What's what's the feel like there? Hi, guys, and thank you for anybody listening. This is the weirdest time imaginable. London is in total lockdown. Uh, we're allowed out of our homes once a day for exercise and to do essential shopping. You could walk on any of the streets. It's like a ghost town in every sense. And it's weird. There's normally... Um, lively, vibrant city uh, has just literally uh, stopped. And I think that this is causing endless uh, difficulties. I keep saying being an extrovert type myself, like talking to people and talking to you virtually, how I wish I was an introvert. It wouldn't be so bad, locked up. But we're doing well. and, And there are some real positives to it. Uh, my wife and I are able to talk more than we've ever done before. We pray more than we've done before. Uh, we look forward to meals. We find different ways of keeping ourselves busy. We try and vary the weekends from the from a weekday. Uh, we're reading a lot, uh, thinking a lot, and longing for the day when, when this is all over and we could actually meet physically with other people. Yeah. Well, in, in the last couple of weeks, we, you know, many of us have been obviously attending online, virtually digital. You actually did a talk for Fresh Life Church for Levi Lesko, which people can go back and watch that, by the way. You can view Ken's talk. You talked about uh, Joseph of Arimathea, your latest book, which we'll get into in a second. But how have you been um, sort of shifting your attention from a Sunday gathering experience? I'd love to know your insights or thoughts on that, just because we're all dealing with that as a new reality. Well, firstly, again, it's the weirdest thing, because you're speaking for a full-length message with no one in front of you, trying to imagine what Montana is like (laughs) from lockdown London. Right. Um, So creative imagination is the essential requirement of any preacher at the moment. You have to conjure up the so-called person, you know, the one that sits in the second row who you really want to get through to. Well, he's not there. She's not there. You have to conjure it up. You have to get the picture in your head. (laughs) Whether I succeeded or not, I don't know. But it it is not, it's not easy. However, I am hugely excited by what's going on. And the reason is simple. We have never had the airwaves, the media waves, as open to us as we have now. There's no football. Uh, there's no NBA. There's no gigs. There's no massive entertainment. We are able to reach people at a time when, we, I believe, people are wanting to hear 
the authoritative good news of Jesus from from people who will speak into the ordinary lives of ordinary people. And so I'm immensely encouraged by that because the church now becomes what it's always meant to be, the place where we go to the people outside rather than saying to them, oh, come into my church and I will look after you in my building. We're now reaching them wherever ordinary people are are at in this amazing gift that God has given us of, of digital communication. You just started uh, this week a, a kind of a series, Crisis and Leadership. Tell us a little bit about that, because by the time people hear this interview, they may listen to this, you know, a, a week from now, a month from now, as we record on March 31st. But you are leaning into giving some input and perspective from your vantage point on what's happening right now. Well, I am. They're very brief, so there's not much time to go into it in any depth. And taken from the life of Joseph of Arimathea, he was the, an observer of the great crisis that occurred in Jerusalem at that time. And I was particularly interested to try and see what kind of lessons we could learn from this person. And I meant it for ordinary people, and not necessarily the big preachers, the people on YouTube, the great uh, disciples. At that time, you might ask, where was John? Where was Peter? Where was Nathaniel? Where were they at the cross? They weren't there. It was Joseph of Arimathea, uh, an ordinary business person who took the body of Christ down. And it points to me that in moments of these crises, an ordinary person can do extraordinary things Mm -hmm. with uh, focus and the grace of God. And so people feel in our churches, well, you know, I'm just a small print. I'm just a footnote. Well, so was Joseph. I mean, he never says anything, but he's recorded in all four of the Gospels. So I was trying to draw, you know, crisis talks. What can we learn from this man at this season of the church's calendar, Easter, and at this season of the incredible volatility we're seeing Fear, volatile, and the world is volatile, uncertain, complex, and very anxious. Yeah, that's good. Well, let's dive into the book. I mean, why write this book? You've written on a number of topics. Got at work. You wrote a book called Strange Kingdom. You wrote a book called Know Your Why. I mean, you have a historical sort of perspective that is unmatched in many ways on both culture, the church, the financial markets as an investment banker for over 40 years. You got a lot of things you could be writing on. Why choose to write on Joseph of Arimathea with your latest book? Well, Brad, that's a very good question. And I don't know who it was that said, you know, the Bible is as electricity. You read something, and I'd read those verses as so many people would have done um, again and again, didn't mean very much. And then suddenly the verse from Luke's gospel just leapt at me, which said, you know, Joseph was a good and righteous man who did not consent to their decision and action. And suddenly I said, do you know what? Joseph was not part of the majority. Here was a person who was, you know, he was obviously, he was a man of of influence. He was a member of the council. He was a person of, of affluence. And he stewarded his influence and his affluence in those short time periods uh, that we record in the gospel, literally a weekend. 
in such a way as to say to me, you know, here is somebody who stood for justice because it was right. An innocent man was being condemned. He was not going to do something that was convenient. He would have to do it publicly. Uh, he would have to vote in a big urn in the middle of the Sanhedrin. He would see his close colleagues watching him vote, standing up for this condemned Messiah, in, you know, with, um, with exclamation marks over it. And I thought, this is what we need, people to stand up against the prevailing social media storms, the prevailing views of what is politically correct in many cases, what is religiously correct in many cases. There are times when the conscience speaks, and those are the people that we want to stand up for. That's what really struck me. And then I delved further and saw, you know, here is just an ordinary man. I say ordinary, but it was ordinary. I mean, he was doing what God had called him to do. He was, mm -hmm. he clearly had affluence and influence, as I mentioned. Yeah. Well, in the subtitle, The Extraordinary Calling of Ordinary People. And you mentioned that, you know, just the idea of as ordinary people, we can make an extraordinary difference through the calling that God places on us. And I don't, did you research and actually, had anybody written on Joseph of Arimathea before that you could find? Uh, no. And I was even wanting to offer a prize to anyone who'd preached a full-length sermon on Joseph of Arimathea. <laughs> Obviously, quite a few get a little mention. Right. But um, there isn't much. Um, there are one or two um, contributions, but nothing like a definitive um, sermon. And so... My mantra at the moment is get to know Joe. Hmm. You know, Joseph, the prime minister of Egypt, we know about. Joseph, Mary's husband, we know about. But Joe, you know, who he? He's someone different. And I think just at this Easter time, it's well worth getting to know Joe. Yeah, we connect those dots. I mean, we, we know the story, but there's such a powerful connection of the Easter story and the presentation of the Easter story, even in the in church context, and how um, you're seeing churches actually using this book and the story, and you're even speaking, you know, for churches around the connection point. So what are you hearing, or what's, what's sort of the practical step that you would love for pastors or church leaders to take? Well, here's the one takeaway. Silent Saturday. The hectic uh, events in Jerusalem over the, the crucifixion, the Sanhedrin's meetings, the going to Pilate, there's action all the time. And then Saturday comes and it's silent. And then there is Sunday when, of course, the wonderful resurrection occurs. But it was left to Joseph and he went and found Nicodemus. And I find that just so important in this time. Partnerships really matter. Hmm. And the partnership between Joseph and Nicodemus, Nicodemus tipped in hundreds of thousands of dollars to buy the uh, anointing uh, herbs and spices that would be used. They were the equivalent of what you would use for a king, not a sort of obviously failed messiah. But they were friends. They met each other. Uh, in, in, the, in the Sanhedrin. They had fear because, you remember, Nicodemus came to Jesus by night and John tells us that Joseph was fearful. Just like many of us, we have fear. And at the moment, fear is stalking the world. Mm. So with that as a background, you get Silent Saturday. 
when it appears that nothing is happening, it appears that it is totally purposeless the whole day. And I think that when we think of Joseph, he takes the, uh, the body of Jesus into his arms, the Messiah dead, the hope of Israel dead, the kingdom of God dead, the hope of resurrection dead because didn't know that any of this was going to be happening and an entire life of discipleship dead. And I think that when we look at the purposelessness of that day and we look at the world as we struggle to find meaning and purpose in this virus-infected world and it appears that, you know, everybody's got a view as where God is and seems to be a silent Saturday. And I don't know any Christian, any leader, any business person who's a Christian who hasn't had to go through the silent Saturday, the times when it appeared that God was far away from the main action of our lives. But Brad, you don't want me to be preaching, so why don't you, uh, no, why it's don't great. you weigh in? You know, chapter four in the book, The Waiting Room, so much of what you just sort of referenced and talked about is captured in the idea of the waiting and the silent Saturday. I mean, talk about, you know, the power of waiting. Because so many right now in this season, like we feel like we're waiting. And we're not even sure what we're waiting on. But I think that's another really, obviously, <laughs> real-time connection of something you wrote not knowing that we would be in this season. Yeah, well, you see, the real issue that we're, that we're grappling with at the moment is precisely that, is that we're waiting, but we don't know for what. Mm -hmm. And the nature of God's waiting room is precisely to be able to deal with us who are convinced that we are in total control. Mm. And there is a collective control failure in the world. Institutions can't control, governments can't control, medical fraternity can't control, our hospitals can't control this virus. And we're facing this crisis of waiting against the background of this serious loss of control over our lives, over our direction, over our nations, over our finances. I mean, the financial markets are chaotic and governments pumping money in to try and control events. And for the Christian, it is a time of waiting, even when we don't know how it's going to pan out. There is a certain lamentation, mm. a certain way in which we feel together with, with humanity wherever it is on the planet that we are struggling. And that waiting is, of course, a creative ways in which God is enabling us to leave what lies behind and to press on, to take hold of that which lies ahead, as Paul reminds us in the Philippians. And the, there's a poem that I'm always quoting in this season, which says simply, do not look for this year's bird in last year's nests. Mm -hmm. Don't try and do that now in this changed environment what worked last year. It will not work. And in the efforts to try and do that will simply mean that sadly many will have a, a, a terrible burnout in the season of trying to control that which cannot be controlled, but which we have to rely on God to walk by faith in, in our lives rather than by sight, because sight and knowledge not helping very much 
at the moment. Are you noticing, Ken, like you spend a lot of your time really being a, I would say, a advisor, counselor, coach in many ways to global leaders, to CEOs, to heads of state. I mean, what are you saying to them? What are you saying to the person that's calling you the last couple of weeks and going, Ken, I have no clue how to navigate in this season right now? It's very difficult. I had a, a hedge fund friend of mine ring me yesterday, and his question to me is, well, Ken, where is your God in all of this? So there is a questioning that's going on. It unfortunately raises some of the most difficult issues of our faith. But there is no, no suggestion that we should make of just saying, well, we don't know, because we do. We know that in the person of Jesus, there is a waiting through a time of very real evil uh, on the cross. But on the cross, he disarmed the principalities and powers. And I think we need to take the love of God and be able to continue to talk in through it that God is able to bring good out of evil. Mm. So that's the macro picture that people are asking this question again and again. The rest of it is purely survival. You know, how do you run your life when financial markets are so volatile, your pension, your savings, your, uh, you know, how long is it going to last? How will we come through this? And I think those are some of the more difficult questions where we, we must speak hope to people, by which I mean not some sort of optimism, uh, you know, that, oh, this will pass. It is true, pandemics will pass. They do pass. But it's not whether they pass. It is whether we are changed through what is passing. Hmm. And, and that is the key thing that I'm trying to offer to my friends, talk to them about relationships. You know, you're living in a small environment, in closed confinement. What does forgiveness look like? When, you know, you irritate each other, even the best of marriages will be mm. irritating because we're locked up. How do we deal with that? Well, there is a grace from God for this time. Do you have a specific wise phrase or statement or thoughts for a pastor? Because, you know, the average pastor listening, they're navigating a very specific set of circumstances, primarily that they can't gather. Digital is now the new norm for quite a while, it might be. Uh, is there something you're saying or that you're finding that is helpful for them in this season? Yes. And I think, um, Brad, I'm trying to remember whether it's Ecclesiastes 7, where he says, keep sowing your seed hmm. in the season, because you don't know which is the one that will succeed, whether it's this or that or both. And I think it's a wise saying. So my encouragement to a pastor be hold hope and keep sowing, even if you don't know which is going to succeed, because trying to determine the outcome is trying to play God. All that we can do is to sow the seed, and this is digital engagement, finding ways of being able to keep people's spirits up by, you know, Zoom calls or Skype calls or whatever it might be, the fitter, helping the older. All of that can be done now because it's, it's what we would, it's what the merciful thing is to do in this moment. 
and not to try and work out, oh my gosh, what's going to happen when all this ends? When all this ends, the only question is, how did I come through it as a changed person? Hmm. And it's, it's fearful. I understand that. Finances, what's going to happen to the finances? What's going to happen to the physical community? Uh, all these issues are in the front of many of my pastor friends. And my encouragement is keep sowing and don't try and determine which one is going to succeed because you don't know. That's good advice. You have a circle of young leaders, a lot in their 20s and 30s in the UK that you gather on a regular basis. You, you've had a ton of influence on a lot of friends that I've tried to gather the last several years in different contexts. You speak a lot into the 20 and 30 somethings. So for many of them, you know, they've got this incredible dream, vision. They're hopeful about the future. They want to build something. What are you telling them? Well, firstly, I, what I'm telling them is learn from this experience because for so many of them, it, you know, it appears they fit, they're healthy. You know, they might get a mild dose of something, but it's not going to be life-threatening. But learn from the situation because it is a time of learning when the hindsight of older people, of the boomers, and the insight of younger guys need to be drawn together. So it's a time to learn from each other and also a time to actually find a new understanding of how it is that we do life together and I don't mean do church together, I mean do life, yeah. because that's the engagement that the society wants to know. How, how do you do life when fear is, is right there every single moment, when you turn on every news item that gives you a death toll, like some kind of financial index, uh, the fear index indices are, are rising. Mm. How, how do you do life? That's what I'm encouraging them to do, to, to spread hope, to speak hope to themselves and hope to the people that they're engaging with and to overshare. This is the one moment when overcommunication really, really helps. Wouldn't you say, too, like this is a great time to really double down on know your why? I mean, the premise that I need to reevaluate, sort of, you know, making sure that I'm I'm headed in the right direction. You touch a great spot. Um, you see... Simon Sinek said, uh, you know, how important to uh, find your why. And the wonderful heritage for those who trust in Jesus Christ is that we can know our why. But because we've been running at such a pace and our egos have got the better of us, our desires for more likes, for more engagements, for more social media action has actually clouded some of the signature callings, as I call it, in your particular life, a signature calling that God wants to free you up to recognize and to grow into and to shape rather than to just treat it as one of the many things that are being done. And so there is a deep psychological process that is going on right throughout the generations of people asking that basic question, how do I find and fulfill my calling in life? which is what Know Your Why was, was all about. And it's, you know, it's that first words of Jesus in John's Gospel was a question. And it could not be even more pertinent than now, which is, what do you want? Mm. What do you want out of life? 
now that literally everything has stopped. What do you want? What is your aspiration, your hope, your realistic dreaming rather than just fantasizing? That's great. I want to ask you one more question, and it's a big leadership question. So many people right now are talking about that crisis is a time when you know leaders really either step up or they go away or they find their greatness in times when uncertainty reigns, but they can bring some kind of calm to chaos. So we've got leaders listening to this and they're trying to figure out what does leadership for me look like? Is there a characteristic or a trait or a something that you would say in this season, this is the most important aspect of your leadership personally? If you had to boil it down to sort of, you know, what's the most important thing right now for leaders to have? What is that? It's a funny thing. Flexibility. Mm. The leaders that are going to come through this strengthened are not the ones that are in overdrive now repeating what they've done for the last year. Do not look for this year's birds in last year's nests. Those that are capable of dealing with uncertainty are therefore flexible to be able to read the signs, like the sons of Issachar, to read what's happening and to do what they see. That trait is never thought to be very important amongst leaders, but it's absolutely critical now because the rigid command and controlled structured ways of actually running programs and running processes are going to be challenged every single day mm. as new ways need to be found of engaging with the people around you. So I think that would be uh, unusual, I know, not the ones you normally read in, uh, in the leadership manuals, but that is going to, the malleable, flexible leader that can read and see the winds, you know, where they're blowing and being able to read the signs and step into them in different ways and not be bound by previous um, ways of doing things. That's going to be gold when we come through this time. That's helpful. Good perspective. Uh, again, the latest book, Joseph of Arimathea, which I would highly recommend. Go get it. Ken has put together something that will help all of us and all of his other books as well. And he's a great follow on Instagram. So he's got this new series, but he also has all kinds of wisdom he's always putting out there. Ken, thanks for taking a few minutes, man. Thank you. And thank in. you for all the patient listeners. You're doing an amazing work, those of you who are pastors. It's the most challenging time as so many people are idle and are wondering what to do with to fill the time. You are in overdrive. Just remember to invest in yourself. It's not selfish. It's vital. Anything else you want to bring up, CJ, before we... Uh before we land this plane? All we'd say is, you know, follow us, subscribe, rate and comment. You know, if you enjoy this podcast or you just want to continue to hear uh, some of the things that are happening in leadership and uh, want to stay posted, just uh, follow us and subscribe and leave us a review if you don't mind. We got lots more coming up for you. Lots more interviews, talks. We'll be sitting down with leaders. So stick with us. We love being on the journey with you and we want you to be a healthy leader and have a thriving church. So as we always say, that is your role, that's your job. And uh, we want you to lead well and finish well. So on behalf of CJ and Kip Johns, I'm Brad Lominick. Thanks for joining us. We'll talk to you again very soon.
The Thrive Leadership Podcast is hosted by CJ Alvarado and Brad Lominick and is produced by Kip Johns. To download and share this and other Thrive podcasts, go to thriveconference.org.